Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, the Libyan writer Hisham Matar talks with Helge Iwurheim, Professor of Cultural History at the University of Oslo. The conversation took place on August 24, 2016. Introduction by Sigur Falkenberg Mikkelsen, Middle East correspondent for the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation. I arrived in Tripoli, Libya's capital, for the first time in late August 2011. Revolutionary militias had forced the ruler of the city and country for 42 years, Muammar Gaddafi, to flee, and with him flew a remaining core of loyalists. Their leader was on the run, but fighting was still raging in the city when we arrived. I don't know if they thought they still could win, or just knew they had nothing to lose. We stopped in the city centre quite late in the day, not sure exactly where we were, and started asking people if they knew a place we could stay. The two big and famous hotels were full, and none of us really wanted to stay in them anyway. But there were no functioning hotels in the area we stopped. But in one of the smaller streets, the residents broke open a door to a closed hotel and told us we could stay there for free. It had belonged to some kind of police officer. It had no service but beds and running water. We had arrived and could start our work. A few weeks earlier, I had moved to Cairo to start my assignment as Middle East correspondent for the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation, NRKO. And by then, the war in Libya had been raging for almost half a year. From afar, it looked as the front lines were stalled, and I was preparing a trip to the Eastern Front. Of course, the outcome of the war was never in doubt when you look at it in hindsight and the forces at play. Muammar Gaddafi had lost almost all international support, most of the support in his country, and he was fighting various rebel forces within Libya. Forces that could rely on NATO as its air force. And Libya is a flat, desert country. When front lines break down, things happen fast. And that is exactly how we have events unfolded that fall of 2011. When we heard that the front lines had been broken around Tripoli, I dropped my plans to go to the Eastern Front and the city of Benghazi. Instead, I boarded a plane to Tunisia, traveled from there to Jerba in the south of the country, and from there north to the Nafusa Mountains, where a Berber driver, this is Berber country, or Amazig, as they call it, took us with his pickup truck to Tripoli. We could cross the border easily, but after two days of travel, we got stuck at a checkpoint in the city of Zintan. A soldier refused to let us pass, and we spent half a day in Zintan trying to find someone with authority to give us a letter that would let us through. We could not pass without it. The city-based militias ruled their own territory. It was a sign of what was to come. This explains our late arrival in Tripoli and also our improvised shelter. But anyway, we ended up staying at this hotel with no locks on the doors, no one cleaning the bedsheets or bathroom. What we had, and what that was more important, we had people looking after us, and we had running water. Why? I still don't know. Uh, most places lost it at some point during those days and suffered the consequences, including the five-star hotels where all the big spending journalists and technicians from the international news networks stayed. These were then transformed into survival of the fittest or richest kind of prison. 
they didn't have much food either, which we had most of the time, thanks to the people who had opened up the hotel for us. I don't know how they did it, but almost every day they showed up with some kind of food. Not an easy task in wartime, made more complicated by this being in the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan. Only one night we regretted staying there. The tension in the street had been building up for days between families living on our street and another family living on the next block. It was related to the Gaddafi years, and our guys had suffered, whereas the neighbors had profited. At least that is what we were told. Revenge was in the air, and one night, with no power, and nothing is as dark as a big city with no power, it all broke loose. There was fighting in the street, and sounds of gunshots, and people shouting and crying in the dark night. By then, I think we were nine journalists and photographers living in the hotel, and we all huddled together at the hotel rooftop and hoped to wait it out and that our street would win the fight. We made it through the night, but, people, but, but two people were killed, one from each side. A new cycle of revenge had started. The rooftop was actually a dangerous place, though, for another reason. Bullets falling from the sky. The soldiers fought during the day, and by nighttime the various militias, Khatibs as they were called, drove their ragtag Mad Max-inspired vehicles into the central square to fire off their guns, into the air to celebrate and blow off steam and adrenaline, and also, I think, to tell everybody that there were new masters in the country. Every morning we would find several bullets on the rooftop. The square they went to is beautifully located by the sea. It's known as Martyrs Square, even though Gaddafi's regime tried to rename it the Green Square after the color of his revolution. The name never really stuck with the Libyans, though, but it was a sign of how he tried to control every aspect of life in the city, and he did so for 42 years. Even though he had lost it, it still felt like his city those first few days. But for me, it had never been only Gaddafi's city. It had also been Hisham, Matar's city. Every time I went down to Martyr Square during the fall of Tripoli to speak to the people celebrating the end of the tyrant and get news from the various front lines, I had Matar with me. For me, his book in the country of men was just as much a part of that square as all the events happening before my eyes. And for me as a newcomer to Libya, an outsider, an observer, a journalist, Fiction literature like this broadens my view and gives me a deeper understanding, instant understanding, human understanding of reality and the rapid changes that were to unfold. Let me quote a passage, if you permit, uh, Mr. Matar, from the opening chapter of this book in the country of men, being set in 1979, and we witnessed this through the eyes of a young boy called Suleiman. She took me downtown to the Sesame Man in the market by Martyrs Square, the square that looked onto the sea, the square where a sculpture of Septimius Severus, the Roman emperor, born all those years ago in Lepsis, proudly stood. She bought me as many sesame sticks as I wanted, each wrapped in white wax paper twisted at either end. I refused to let her put them in her bag. On such mornings, I was always stubborn. But I have some more shopping to do, she said. You're bound to drop them like this. No, I said, curling my eyebrows. I'll wait for you outside, and walked off angrily, not caring if I lost her or became lost from her in the big city.
Listen, she called after me, attracting the people's attention. Wait for me by Septimius Severus. This is, of course, a description of uh, ordinary life, but what follows is not. It's a tale of how every aspect of life was affected by the power of the ruler, the guide, Muammar Gaddafi. Many of you have probably read it. If not, you should. It's a tale of the price of dissidence a family pays for opposing the system. Shortly after his mother has bought him his sesame sticks, Suleiman sees his father, who was supposed to be on a trip abroad. Something is not right. The neighbor and family friend, Professor Ustad Rashid, has already been taken by the secret police. Suleiman and his mother are followed by <clears throat> four men in white suits. The mother cannot stand the pressure of her husband's activities and resorts to alcohol as a remedy, what she calls her medicine, and the young Suleiman can't understand why she is only sick when father is absent. This is, of course, as all Matar's work, a very a story relating to the relationship within a family between a son and a mother, a son and a father. And this is also why it's such a strong book. But it's also, for me, a book on the suffocating power the ruler had on the people living under his reign. How impossible a normal, dignified life as a citizen of a political community was. Silence or exile, as Suleiman's mother puts it. This, I believe, explained why celebrations after the fall of Tripoli was, had a slightly surreal touch. That was to change, though, when the news of his death arrived. This happened about a month and a half after the fall of Tripoli. His convoy tried to escape his hometown of Sirt and was bombed by French Rafale fighter planes. A group of rebel soldiers from the town of Misrata later lynched him. I got the news as an SMS on my phone when I was standing in the election office in Tunis. They were organizing their first election, just as the dictator in the neighboring country was murdered. And this very understandably, but perhaps not to the credit of my profession, made us all leave Tunisia and rush to Libya. I got the last place on the last plane leaving to Jerba, the closest airport, and by then we could use the road that follows the coastline, a much quicker route to Tripoli than the one through the mountains. The border guards were so euphoric about the news that they stamped our passports without bothering to look, if we had visas, which we didn't have. And then we made it to Tripoli by night, passing city after city with one celebration more crazy than the other. One place we were, uh, where we stopped, they raced their cars, danced in the street, promised to slaughter camels. They seemed almost drunk with excitement. And of course, when we reached Tripoli and Martyr Square, it was packed with people. It was finally over. Or rather, almost over. Shortly afterwards, all Libyans had the video of his capture in a drainage pipe, this means Gaddafi's capture and killing, and his following humiliation on their mobile phones. And amid speculation about what to do with the body, the commanding officer of the Misrata militia who had captured him decided to put his corpse on show to make sure to everybody that he was dead. On the outskirts of the city, which lies a few hours drive from the capital, there is a meat market. And in this meat market, there are refrigerated containers. And this is where they put him, together with his son, Mutasim. People came from far away to see him, and I met the man there who had brought his young son. Even to me, it was an extremely powerful and also distressing sight. 
Muammar Gaddafi was also part of my childhood as a villain dictator on TV, and later as a man who ruled and closed off his country to foreign visitors and journalists and suppressed dissidents, and in his later years as the folkloric Arab leader who brought with him his tent to foreign meetings, not least camping at the Champs-Élysées during a state visit to France. I do not say this to ridicule him or his rule. I do it because he also had a grip on a world audience, on our imaginaire, if I can say so, as well as the people he ruled and suppressed. I therefore understand the need people had to travel from far away, to see him, to smell him dead, and even bring a son. Of course, his killing didn't answer the real questions for the future of the country. Why was the garbage not collected in Tripoli? Why were people still poor despite the oil wealth? And why, and most importantly, did all the militias keep their weapons after the war was over? I will leave my part of the story here by the corpse of the slain dictator on the outskirts of Misrata. This is where Hisham Matar's latest book begins, The Return, Jem Komsten, already introduced in the Norwegian translation. His return to Libya without Muammar Gaddafi, without his family's nemesis. Thank you so much for your attention, and thank you, Hisham Matar, for writing, for telling the story of your family and the country of your birth. Can you hear us? Are we uh, technically where we should be? Yeah? Fantastic. Uh, so I'd like to thank Sigurd for that wonderful uh, reminder of, a, of recent events in, in Tripoli and in Libya, um, partly because they were uh, extremely illuminating and engaging, but also because it, it allows us to sort of... Uh, with much, not much further ado, jump directly into discussing your book. Hishamata, uh, welcome, and it's great to, to have you here. And I look so much forward to, to discussing this, this work with you. And I, I thought to just to, to start um, and to sort of bridge the, the sort of the contextual uh, presentation that we just had and the book itself, I'd, I'd just like to quote something that I think is extremely precise as to how I see the relationship between Libyan history and your book. Uh, so it's it's halfway in the book, and um, it's a dinner at your your house um, just after after uh, Gaddafi has, has to come to power. And you write, we tiptoed around each other, trying our best to avoid confronting the ways in which political reality manages to infiltrate intimacies, corrupting them with unuttered longings and accusations. So isn't this sort of, in a way, what the book is about? How political reality infiltrates intimacies? How Libyan history, colonial and post-colonial history, infiltrate the intimacies of a family? Would that be sort of a presentation of the book, I think? Um, it's one aspect of it, yeah. Um, first of all, hello, hi. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you for having me and all thanks to the organizers and to everybody who's been so lovely. Um, what is the book about is a very tricky question, really. I'll tell you why. Because the way I start writing, I don't write with, with a kind of, you know, fully formed intention. 
I don't think, okay, this is what uh, uh, I'm going to do. Um, it starts almost as a kind of uh, a need or um, a curiosity to engage with a set of ideas mm. or with a set of, of preoccupations. But now that I've written it and, <laughs> and, and read it, I can see that one of the things was, that was going on that relates to what you have just said is that if you have all of these things happen, if um, political reality excludes you from a place, excludes you from people, um, disappears certain people uh, and friends and so on, and you cannot re return, and so on. In other words, if your relationship to political reality is a relationship of dispossession, of an acquaintanceship with living uh, with, um, with dispossession, one of the sensations that it feels like on, on a personal level is, is drowning. Yeah. It's as though history has got you by the neck and is pushing mm. you down. So it seems to me that one thing that you can do uh, as a as a writer, in response to this, is write a book where you bring everything to the surface, uh, history, politics, but also your preoccupations with literature and art and ideas. And so, in other words, it, it becomes an act, an exercise in consciousness, in creating a space for consciousness mm -hmm. in this very busy and urgent atmosphere right. you know where somebody like me <laughs> with my preoccupations you know if you're if you're interested in a line from a novel if you're interested in a painting if you're interested in literature and ideas and you are in a, a you know in a political situation in a political family where where people uh, are risking everything for what they believe it becomes complicated mm. to engage in these right. preoccupations. Right. Um, and so that was something else that was, that's what I mean by consciousness, is that you bring it all to the surface where a disappearance or an incredibly violent political occurrence is given the same kind of attention as a painting. Right. I mean, I, I, I really uh, appreciate the fact and I, I, how the book is written that it's an exploration and that you, you didn't, take all these decisions beforehand but then again it seems you that you or did you take you know, make one important decision writing a memoir I mean you're an experienced writer you've written books before and was it did you decide started when you started writing that this time it's gonna be about my life or in the life of my family explicitly as the genre of a memoir? Or was that also something that came to you when you started working through these materials? Um, more the latter. You know, I'm interested in um, being written by the book. Right. You know, I'm interested in um, being initiated into a book. And certainly my experience of writing in the country of men, Anatomy of a Disappearance, has, was like that. Mm -hmm. I felt that there was a period of time when the book is got um, far more knowledge about itself than I do about right. it. Yeah. And I, the act of writing is an act of being initiated into the logic of it, into the rhythm, the nuance, the way that it wants to tell itself, you know, the way that it walks, you know. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's attitude. So I'm, I'm being initiated into it. And then once I figure that out, then the fun starts for me in the writing because I really do feel like I'm being written, I'm being led, as it were. Um, 
And uh, that's just uh, exhilarating uh, for me. And so it's interesting when you say you're now an experienced writer, because I don't feel experienced at all, because every book I feel right. I'm being, yeah. you know, starting, you know, being learning what the book wants. And with this one, the way it, it came about is that I went to Libya for the first time in 33 years in 2012, and I traveled exactly the way that you're advised not to travel, which <laughs> is that you travel with your mother and your wife. <laughs> <laughs> For for a whole month, and um, and we stay at the same hotels, um, but it turned out to be phenomenal, exactly because the three of us were traveling together, um, wonderful. And um, but I also um, was um, that, coming back again to that feeling of submergence. Mm. I felt submerged by the place. I didn't know everywhere I would turn, I would find resonance from the past. Yeah. I couldn't find a way with which to engage with it in the present. And any relationship, you know, any relationship with a place, with a book, with a human being, you know, the ambition is to have it in the present, mm. to have it vital, not mm. to have it be always about what happened. <laughs> right. So I, I wanted that with it. I, I yearned for that for it to happen. And one of the ways that, uh, paradoxically, that I felt I could do that is by keeping a detailed journal. Mm. Um, I didn't know what else to do. Mm. That's all I. That's as far as the remit of my thinking could go. And there's an editor that I have written for before in in, uh, in New York, who's the David Ramnick, the editor of the New Yorker magazine. Um, who, when he knew that I was going back, he said, "Hisham, you know, would you write us something about this?" And and he um, he's also my wife is a photographer, and he's. David uh, is, is fond of her work uh, and asked that she takes the pictures. So on the face of it, a very nice mm. idea. <laughs> but I really didn't know. I told David, I have no idea what this trip mm. will do. So I, I can't commit to something. I'll just... He said, well, go see how it goes when you come back. Do what, whatever you, you feel is right. And so um, I came back and I spent two, between two to three months where I didn't write a word. No, that never happened to me. I mean, I didn't even write a letter. I mean, literally, I did not write a word for three months. Right. And I felt silenced by the place, you know, dumbfounded by it. And I thought, maybe that's it, you know? Uh, maybe I should find something else to do. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then I consulted those notes, those journals, and I thought, I'll just start with that first page. Right. Of course, the book is not the journal, because the journal has a completely different mode. But the book starts with you know, the first line of the book. Early morning, March 2012. Right. That's basically, that's what I wrote in, in the journal when we were sitting in the airport right. waiting to board the plane. And then I quickly discovered that the way the book moves, by which that's what I mean by the attitude of, of the book, the, the attitude of this book is that it moves forward, so we are in the airport, we're about to board the plane. But it seems like every step I take forward provokes and excites, you know, memories and recollections and right. so on. So it's a book that does this. It yeah. moves forward and goes back, moves forward and goes back. Um, and um, in that, there was something technically very exciting. But also the excitement in it was what the book was able to do. Mm. It was like a very good horse. You know, that's saying, you know, I can, I can, you know, I can climb 
I can do cross country, I could gallop, I could canter handsomely across the avenues. Just, you know, come on. You know? <laughs> so, so it was um, a challenge in that exhilarating. So there's a paradox in this book because the book is, of course, about very painful, mm. incredibly intense things. And it wasn't, you know, easy to write. And it was personal. So uh. it was a feeling of being exposed in it. But at the same time, technically uh, and artistically, it was, um, it was uh, you know, just a joy to write it. This is probably the point where we should give the audience a small reading, right? So they uh -huh. can they can see how you're galloping through the the pages. Um, I've I've asked Hisham to to read a certain passage because I think it's it's so wonderful and it's such an illustration of how the book moves and and works. And yeah, and I don't think it needs introduction really, um, meaning you know um, any kind of plot introduction. The country that separates fathers and sons has disorientated many travelers. It is easy to get lost here. Telemachus, Edgar, Hamlet, and countless other sons, their private dramas ticking away in the silent hours, have sailed so far out into the uncertain distance between past and the present that they seem adrift. There are men, like all men, who have come into the world through another man, a sponsor, opening the gate and, if they are lucky, doing so gently, perhaps with a reassuring smile and an encouraging nudge on the shoulder. And the fathers must have known, having once themselves been sons, that the ghostly presence of their hand will remain throughout the years, to the end of time, and that no matter what burdens are laid on that shoulder, or the number of kisses a lover plants there, perhaps knowingly driven by the secret wish to erase the claim of another, the shoulder will remain forever faithful, remembering that good man's hand that had ushered them into the world. To be a man is to be part of this chain of gratitude and remembering, of blame and forgetting, of surrender and rebellion, until a son's gaze is made so wounded and keen that, on looking back, he sees nothing but shadows. With every passing day, the father journeys further into his night, deeper into the fog, leaving behind remnants of himself and the monumental yet obvious fact, at once frustrating and merciful, for how else is the son to continue living if he must not also forget, that no matter how hard we try, we can never entirely know our fathers. Thank you. Please. Thanks. So we're going to come back to the, the father and son and even grandfather um, uh, relationships and, and uh, histories. I just wanted to, to start somewhere else because I'm, I'm still stunned by that first sentence. In the country that separates fathers and sons, has disoriented many travelers. And it's the same idea that you find in the subtitle, right? It's the, the father's sons and the land in between. So what does that mean? What does it mean that land, a country, separates fathers and sons? Well, how, how, do you, how do you 
come about to create that figure of thought that I think is it's it's really striking. Well, I think when you are looking for your father, you are also looking for other things. Mm. And part of what's interesting to me about the nature of intimacy is the distance. The paradox about intimacy right. is the distance between people. So the people that are most intimate to me seem incredibly unknowable, mysterious. Um, and I think intimacy somehow relies on that or needs that, you know, mm. as a... Um, with this relationship, um, with my father, the distance is made very complicated by time, by the fact that we could never be contemporaries. Right. Um, and that, well, I mean, I remember this, this is before he disappeared. Uh, we were very close, but I was also quite interested by the fact that he was a total mystery to mm. me, you know. And maybe he felt the same way about me, I'm sure, mm. also. <laughs> uh, but obviously, with the you know, with what has happened. But also I see it, you know, with what has happened to other, to people I know, friends of mine, close male friends who have lost their father in the natural way. I can also see that uh, this, this, is, this distance between the generations is a complex and interesting one. Mm. I mean, I say in the book at some point that I am no different, that we all live in the aftermath. You know, um, and that distance has to do with that, which is not such a melancholy fact. I know it's it, it's it is of course melancholy, but it's also to me an incredibly interesting fact. You know, the very basic thing that each one of us is here, and there are lines of people behind us. You know, mm -hmm. we are born into these into these histories. We are, um, and. Uh, by born into them, we are implicated by into them, but uh, I don't mean implicated in the kind of basic sense of mm -hmm. where we have to just jinguistically kind of uh, support them, but we are we are invited to engage with them imaginatively and intellectually, I think. Right. I, I love the idea of living in the aftermath. I think it can be used to understand uh, many parts of, of human existence, actually. But I just wanted to go back to, because I'm interested in, in the way you think about land and country still. I want to go back to that, because it's mm. it's something about exploring going home, exploring a certain geography, topography, architecture, uh, that is uh, intrinsically linked to how you think about your history and how you write. I'm really interested in that. It's, it's part of you, you said it earlier that, well, you're not telling the story chronologically. No, and, and partly the reason is that because it's, you, you're telling it as sort of something that, that is present in the, in the landscape, mm. in the cities, right? Mm, mm, mm. So I've, I'm just interested in, so uh, could the country that separates fathers and sons also be understood in a really physical, geographical, topographical sense yeah i do i mean i think that's what's actually interesting about literature is that the that through the specific through the physical uh such as land and geography but also so many other things gestures language itself um becomes alive with with resonances that are to do with things that might seem abstract but i think are actually very commonplace mm -hmm. in other words how many times are you in an interaction talking to a friend about, you know, 
the price of cucumbers. I never talk with friends about the price of cucumbers, <laughs> but if you were talking with a friend about the price mm -hmm. of cucumbers, and at the same time, your brain is doing three, four other things. You're perceiving so much. So that's, um, you know, uh, an everyday occurrence. But the land, yes, no, the land, as I think it was um, Murid Barghuti said, the land is amoral. You know, the land has its own memory, its own uh, pace, and it expresses its own notions. Um, and it makes you, it's also there's something consoling about it, because it makes you, it reminds you of the basic fact that life continues happening. Mm. You know? Right, it takes place. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to go back to uh, what you said earlier. You, I mean, this is a book that starts in an airport. Uh, you're t returning to Libya. Uh, but you are really reluctant to return. I mean, there, mm. are, there are moments where you are almost about to turn back. You have the mm. feeling. And yeah. This is something. And then the wonderful structure of the book is that then between those moments, we hear about sort of parts of, of Libya and your own family history. So I guess, uh, why... Why is that so incredibly hard to return from exile? Uh, does that and what? How, how do you see that? Why? Why was that so hard? I think that's one of the things that the book is really interested in: mm. is in the meaning of return, mm. and that that when you leave a country for such a long time, you have changed, and the country is changing. The two fixed points, as it were, aren't fixed; they're moving, and then when they come together you it's as if that you have gone to a new place so return the the idea of returning to anywhere to anything is a very uncertain idea for me uh but why i was oscillating between returning and not returning is because i got used to i had to develop so many tactics to uh do away with without my country yeah. you know i've learned things that I didn't even think I was actually learning but you're forced into it mm. and you, you pick them up and it comes to feel like a kind of arsenal as a kind mm. of, you know, as a kind of um, shield and so crossing this gap of 33 years did feel, as I say in the book, it did feel like flying over a chasm mm. you know, and there's always a risk of falling mm. um and so it's, uh, you know, th there are many, many reasonable reasons not to return. Sure. You know, um, because also when you return, what happens is that the present and the past are, are interwoven in such a way that seems as if they erase one another. Mm. Um, so uh, there was a mention of Martyr's Square, which uh, I wrote about in my first book and remember in a certain way when I was a boy. And when we went uh, to Tripoli, uh, my wife Diana and I stopped and had a had an espresso in a cafe. And I looked behind me, and there was this square. And I said, "That's a that's a that's a familiar square. I wonder what that, that I wonder what the square is." So I asked the barista, I told him, "What's the square?" And he said, "That's uh, now it's Martyr Square again." He said, <laughs> "Right." <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, so for a moment I didn't recognize it, uh, and actually, as we walked into it, I re I both recognized it, and at the same time, it was totally new and different. Right. And that kind of, you know, sense of vertigo that you get in going back to a place 
that is incredibly recognizable and incredibly yeah. different. Like you know, you know how they say when you go, and it's certainly my experience, when you go to a place that you've known when you were a kid, and everything looks smaller than you remember mm, it, right? right. right? Mm. And I thought that will happen in Libya. Mm. It didn't. Everything was exactly the same scale. It was very, very eerie. Very, mm. Like we went to our house, the house where I grew up. Everything was exactly to the same scale as I remembered it. I could find my way to my school. We went to visit my uncle and I had um, some cousins with me who live there. They know exactly. They go to this house all the time. And one of them lost his way and I found the way mm. there. So it was these moments of incredible recognition combined with moments of, of yeah. total uh, bewilderment. These aren't states that are comfortable. And I think subconsciously I was aware of how, um, of how uncomfortable they would be. And also, of course, the other untold central right. question is the question of what happened to my father, who was a political prisoner and disappeared in the... In the prison system and uh, after the revolution, we had to hope that he would be released if he's still alive, uh, and he wasn't. And so there was still a, a qu big question mark, mm. what happened to him. Mm. And you're always both desiring somebody to walk up to you and say, oh yes, you're Hisham Matar, let me tell mm. you what happened to your father. Mm. Or, and at the same time, hoping it will never happen. Uh -huh. right? So you're, you're, you are the scene of this, of this private and... Uh, mildly shameful struggle yeah. of wanting to know and not know so all of that was yeah. with me as I boarded the plane mm. um, so. it's, it seems like exile is one of those things that, that that sort of inspire authors to create all kinds of wonderful aphorisms and paradoxes and, and you have one yourself saying that uh, um, what to do when you cannot leave and you cannot return Mm. But the most amazing thing mm. you say about exile is something else, and you almost said it again now uh, when you say it's so familiar. And you have this wonderful description uh, about about your uh, anxiety to meet your double, that mm. someone has been living there in your place and being in complete harm. You've been in exile, yeah. but in the meantime, someone yeah. has been there as yeah. you living in complete harmony yeah. with the with the surroundings which is sort of this this sort of german eerie doppelganger romanticism idea yeah. that i think is really really fascinating mm. and that's really what you're saying isn't it that when this is so familiar in a way you could you you could meet yourself or that that's sort of one of the one of the anxieties that you you might have is that what you're Yes, and also, uh, yes, absolutely. But also that it is forever an expression of displacement. You know, the yeah. fantasy of meeting the the double who is in, firmly installed right. is also an anxiety of displacement. And who knows, maybe no one is firmly installed. Mm. Maybe, you know, if, you've grow, if I'd grown up in the same place all the time. Uh, you know, maybe, in other words, it's an expression of something much more commonplace. Right. But with this fate what one of the things that it does make maybe maybe a commonplace occurrence more explicit or exaggerated i think exile is many things but one of the things that it is is that it's an exaggerator of of yeah. universal qualities that we all go through mm -hmm. qualities that aren't i think um that unknown to maybe everybody here you know but the exile exaggerates them a bit maybe that's why 
Um, but, you know, so f for example, one of the things that it exaggerates is that if I were to look back at my relationship to different places, my relationship to the English language, and look at the various different cross-sections, the, the many different possibilities that could have happened. Mm. When my family left Libya, we went to Kenya. We could have stayed in Kenya. Mm. What would have happened then? We went to Egypt. went to Egypt at the moment when the Arabic school system in Egypt was breaking down. And I was excellent in Arabic. And the two things I was really good at when I was a kid was Arabic. And to me, it was like, I still remember now, as I'm telling you, I remember the, the kind of fullness in the chest I used to feel before Arabic mm. class. Because within everything else in the school, I felt incredibly anxious. I didn't like school mm. at all. But that was the moment I felt self-assured. I knew it, you know, I knew it inside out, and I, and, 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 and I enjoyed it. Uh, and the other thing I was good at is I, I could swim further into the sea than anyone else. <laughs> Those are the two things I was good at. <laughs> and so, so when the school system started to collapse in Egypt, this is a much bigger story, mm. um, my parents then did what most families in Egypt who could afford it, did, which is send their kids to private schools, which means foreign language schools. Right. So I was told, so Hisham, choose German, French, or English. Those are the three, the best you know, mm. uh, schools then in Egypt were in these three languages. And I remember choosing English like almost like a dare, you know, like a roulette. You know? <laughs> English. You know? uh. Fine. If that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> uh, and I didn't know anything. And the only thing I knew is, uh, you know, I listened to Bob Marley and Bob Dylan and but I didn't know anything mm. about English language. So, so I learned it. I mean, I spent, you know, I spent the first three months of that school uh, every morning going into a cubicle. I put these headphones mm, on, right. and I listened to an audio book of Jane Austen. And I looked at the book <laughs> for three months. That's how I learned English. Um, so, you know, so all of these kind of possibilities. What if I went into German? What would right. have happened then? Or French? Or stayed in Arabic mm. if the school system wasn't so... Uh, difficult um, and so on so there's lots of you know after university you know when I got to school I went to England into board in the boarding school in England and then after that I was meant to come back to Egypt for university mm -hmm. what would have happened then mm -hmm. or um, there was talk at some point of me going to university in Italy and so the whole thing you know yeah. there's all these kind of yeah. the sort of um, um, Accidents, you know right. that, you know. But that is a common. Everybody in this room would have a yeah. story about that. But just my situation just exaggerates the, the, the depth of the of the fracture, you know. So that's. You know. uh, I guess that's. It's really one of the main reasons that people should read this book. I mean, partly to to learn about Libya, of course, but but it's also because it's so powerfully a book about human life existential situations that we all go through and it's amazing i think that you have i mean you have a, a life story that is very different from mine and from most people in the audience and i mean it's a dramatic singular life story of course mm. it could have been different but it's, mm. it's singular and it's connected some of the, the most dramatic events in the world in the last mm. years but still you've written the book that takes pains on every page to show that this is a a, a, a human experience i would say yeah, yeah. this that's the that, i mean that's the best thing you could have told me now okay. you made me very happy, I'm happy. <laughs> because and, uh, i mean you know because because um in a sense 
like most writers, my enthusiasm for literature arises from private encounters with books, mm. right? And right. My, my, the, my private encounters with books that were most magical right. are moments when you recognize yourself in the most unrecognizable setting. I think, you know, people say we read to, you know, when you're a kid, they all say, you know, read so to know the world, you know, to expand your knowledge. Fair enough, it's true. But I think what, is, what, is, what happens more often and is by far more magical is that we read to, to encounter ourselves. Mm. We read to, to recognize ourselves. Um, to say, oh, yes, you know, that, oh, yeah, that's, I felt that. <laughs> but I, didn't, I wouldn't have put it that way, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and in those moments, I think there's something profoundly magical happens because it connects us into the subterranean network of human emotions and psychology and history that we're all part mm. of. So yes, of course, I am very much interested in the particular. Sure. I'm interested in, as you said, the land, the place, and the particulars of Libyan history of this story. But I am far more interested in the experience of being mm. a human being. Mm. Yeah. So I've, I've been, because I, I was so struck by this, I've been trying to figure out how, how does that happen? Why does the text sort of appeal to me in that way? And I mean, to, to sort of the look you in the cards and see what kind of, of uh, what, what, how do you do this? Mm. I mean, one, I mean, I mean, I might be completely wrong, but mm. one way, obviously, I think, is, it's not obviously, it's I think, um, is the way you use art and literature and and sort of you, you create this this sort of uh, framework of references that makes makes it possible to see that your experiences have echoes in other people's experiences, and you can see them in, in art, for instance. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Art is, um, I mean, it's it's uh, its place in my life is very you know it's it's a sustainer. Mm. Well, it's many things, but one of them in those early years it was a sustainer. Um, I I never used to be able to uh, you know I I used to do the thing that normal people do, uh, which is you go into a museum and you go from one picture to the other, you go to a show and you you know you cover thirty pictures in an hour mm. or something you know. See, I I uh, in my late teens I just couldn't do it. it. Coincided with the time of my father's disappearance, I couldn't do it. I didn't mm. know how to do that. It didn't make any sense to me, and I became very agitated. You know, I'd be like, I'd want to run out of the place. Mm. And also, to be frank, I don't objectively like museums. You know, I don't like the mm, air sure. in the museum. Yeah. I don't like the echoey sound and so on. <laughs> but I really have a deep fascination with art. So mm. I had a problem. How do you then look if you can't look mm. at it this way? So I developed this uh, this uh, trick. Um, which I thought was only for a limited time, just to you know help me uh, cure myself of this affliction. I, uh, it, but then it turned out to be you know a, a lifelong thing. I still mm. do it, you know. Uh, which is I choose a painting and I go to it. I mean, then when I was 19, I would go every day and look at it for for 10, 15 minutes. Um, but I'll do that every day. Mm. I'll go run straight, go into the museum, straight to the mm. painting, stand in front of it. For 10, 15 minutes, mm. still, until today, mm. I have no clue mm. what you're supposed to do in front of a painting. I really don't. It's incredible. There are these pictures. Someone has poured mm. their, their everything into uh. it, and you stand in front of it, and you know, how do you attend to this? Uh. You know, where do you, with a book, there are these questions too, but mm. at least we have, a, we have a code with a book. The way you attend to a book is you start at the first sentence, you mm. go to the last sentence. 
film, symphony, all of that, we know how to. But with a painting, it's really difficult. Mm. You know, where do you, what, uh, what, are we, <laughs> what are I supposed to do here? Mm. And so it was really a way of trying to answer that question. Right. Um, and, but throughout the years now, because I've been doing it for 45, 46, uh, 25 um, <laughs> I, I am 45, but I've been, I've been doing it for about 26 started years. Yeah. I started when I was 19. And, uh, you know, th throughout the years, I realized that together with music and literature, you know, these become ways of, of thinking, of mm. organizing your, your thinking. Um, I think there's such an interesting... Um, distance between the effect of art on the observer and the effect of art on the on the creator and the maker and mm. the author because art oftentimes arises from a sense of you know tumultuous feelings and, and experiences mm. and thoughts it's not necessarily a, a place of serenity mm. no. but it can have that quality on the on the on the observer or the reader or the listener. Mm. Uh, by serenity, I don't mean kind of a, a passive state, mm. but a state of ordering thoughts, of you know, ordering your thinking around this particular picture, allowing the picture to become part of the vocabulary of your inner right. life for that week or month. Or I mean, now the stra now it can go for a year. Mm. One picture can go for a year. <laughs> but um, do you still do this? I still do this. Yeah, yeah. And you've 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 now left uh, Manet. I mean, just to, uh, yeah. this is the English edition. So on the, at the bottom that's you the have American a, one. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah the American yeah. one. Yeah, right. Um, at the bottom you have a piece of a of a painting by Manet. Mm. Uh, it's called Execution of Maximilian the something. Yeah. The, no, the first, the, the no, second. That's it. Yeah. Execution of Maximilian. Right. Um, and the, the the interesting thing well, you is have to say something about the photograph at the top. That's the more important. That's the more important thing. You should say this. Uh, I, I I can say it. I can do the, the. This is by by Hisham's wife, mm -hmm. and um, when I read the book and uh, I, I read it and I got uh, completely absorbed by it. But then I could go to a website and find her pictures taken, well at the same time that yeah. you wrote the diary, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which made the experience. Uh, yeah, I, I was happy I didn't have them before, but it was incredibly, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know, um, sh shocking in a certain way to, to, mm. to look at them afterwards. Mm. Because, I mean, I admit, as you do when you read, you, you, may, you, you make yes. your own images and yeah. then you're confronted with these yeah. real-time things. Yeah. yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, we should talk about but that. The, but, you know, I was, I, was, I was being facetious, but the, the, the painting by Maximilian, uh, it was quite interesting because that was a coincidence. I mean, it was, there was a... You know, there was one of the questions that is asked in the book is to what extent, uh, you know, is it possible that you could lose someone without feeling it, you know, somebody that you love. And I remember hearing on the radio the Syrian poet who had come to London and he stayed at a hotel and, and by Grosvenor Square and he, he walked out of his room for a walk and he was walking in Grosvenor Square and suddenly stopped in the middle of the square and and just felt a deep sense of sadness. Went back to the hotel and they told him that there's a message from home. His mother had died. And I remember hearing that and thinking, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes sense. I can, I can imagine, you know, it would be difficult. I mm -hmm. mean, there, there will be some kind of dysfunctional... But I would have to be on some level dysfunctional mm -hmm. for me not to sense the moment my father ceased to live. And the fact that I haven't sensed it 
means that he's alive. This kind of consoled me mm. for for a while. Um, and then I, um, you know, because now what we know is that we don't know much, but what we know is that he he probably died in the infamous massacre in Abu Slim prison in 1996 when 1,270 political prisoners were executed in the same time. I thought I'll consult my diaries, and I'm I'm not a regular diarist. There are years when there's only like four entries, so I thought, what are the chances, eh, mm. of me having written something that day? And I found an entry that day, very brief entry, and it said that I was switching to this painting. Um, it also said that I had woken up. You know, it's, I think from memory, it goes something like this: got up at noon couldn't get out of bed never speak about money trouble again mm. uh, I think I'm done with Velasquez and I will switch to Maximilian something like that and well I'm I'm an early I'm late hey, don't get the wrong idea it's not that I'm not capable of you know astonishing acts of laziness but but I, <laughs> I but I don't I almost never get up I mean I'm almost constitutionally unable to get up after I mean I, I, I can't sleep late I always get up early um, and uh, and I know that at that time I was having a, I was very poor mm. uh, and I just made a, a pact with myself to never tell anybody that I was I was in, in dire straits, so I always look presentable. Just never speak <laughs> about money trouble. And obviously, I had that night before spoken <laughs> about money trouble. Um, and yeah, and then switching from Velasquez to Maximilian to that picture mm -hmm. on the same day that one thousand two hundred seventeen, which is a painting of an execution, if you did. Yeah, yeah, a painting yeah. of a political yeah. execution. Not only a painting of a political execution, but it is, if you had to choose one painting in the National Gallery in London that best illustrates that day, mm -hmm. it would be this one, because the painting after Monet passed away was cut up in pieces right. and only put together in 1992 in, in, in London, and parts of it are missing, so you don't see Maximilian's face. All you see of Maximilian is his hand held by one of his generals who died beside mm -hmm. him. So, so to, to the coincidence... Mm -hmm. Uh, was unsettling, mm. and um, um, so yeah, so that's that's mm. why it's there. Mm. So, um, just going back to to sort of questions of history and literature for for a moment, and and not knowing a lot about Libyan history, I've worked a lot on German history, mm. so I know a lot about the fraught relationship between generations in German history, mm. between fathers and sons. Mm. And there's something about the experience of a totalitarian regime that seemed to do something with those relationships, mm. right? Mm. Uh, and in your case, it's the relationship to your father, but it's, it's also important to bring in your grandfather in this. He's also mm. an important figure mm. as a resistance fighter against Mussolini, and, mm. and then your, your, your father. Uh, fights Gaddafi. Um, so, how do you see this this continuity of father-son relationships? Uh, how is that? I mean, uh, many times when you read your book, you have the feeling that uh, you're saying that. Well, here here you have history repeating itself again. Um, that similar things happen 
that happened with, with your grandfather and his father to happening with you. Mm. Uh, but then again, it's obviously also a very specific historical uh, issue of generations in a very troubled history of a colonial history, post-colonial history, and uh, totalitarian history. How do you how do you think about that sort of that continuity of 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 difficult relationship between fathers and, and, and sons? Yeah, I think that's very well observed because I think one of the things that is in, always interesting about the story of fathers and sons um, is that it is about two generations responding to similar historical moments. Right. So it's different con and oftentimes conflicting readings uh, of history. Um, I mean, Ivan Turgenev is very interested in this yeah. subject, for example. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, for me, I was, I mean, there, there is, of course, a great distance of historical response between the generations in my book, but um, one of the one of the things I wanted to express was through these characters some of the formative chapters of Libyan history but to what extent Libyan history a lot of it is not known mm. even to Libyans mm, I mean right. we don't write a lot of things down you know mm. so the 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 um, the the idea of the documented fact is very weak right and I think that has um, I mean, not to exaggerate the importance of, you know, documenting things, but I think on some level that has a bewildering yeah. effect on on uh, on the inheritance of history. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, to me, at least, to learn about sort of the extreme brutality of the Mussolini uh, attack in regime and, and of, of Libya was sort of that there were sort of camps that were we would think about concentration camps that they oh were, yeah no the Italians the things they did in Libya were yeah it was just, just awful, uh, yeah. Yeah. awful and not a lot of people know about it exactly and including the Italians I mean in Italy it's uh, uh, the engagement with that history is very weak there mm. are of course people who are knowledgeable and so on but um, by and large the Italians um, the response to it is indifference which is mm. the worst possible response you can have to this uh, kind of history. And that is due to a lot of other issues to do with Italy, specifically mm. and the Italian ability to to see that chapter of Italian fascism as somehow an external force. And mm. there were, you know, so there it's a mm. complicated, complicated response. Mm. And I think says much more about the developmental stage that Italy is at, is at as a country and as a society. Then, then, uh, but from a, a Libyan point of view, it was um, it was brutal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really brutal. What they, you know, they, you know, they they killed almost half of the Cyrenaican right. population. You know, and they, it was a policy of ethnic cleansing. They killed, tried to kill the entire livestock population in Libya. You know, that's such a, an important part of sustaining the country. Because a lot of it is dry, so a lot uh -huh. of it is reliant on livestock. So, um, so yeah, yeah. But you know, again, you know, I wanted to fill it with complexity because that also is a com things happened within that history that were very interesting. Mm. You know, right. Italians remained, and there are now you know Italiano Libico, mm. Libyan Italians, yeah. who then were kicked out by Gaddafi <laughs> to. Um, 
you know, as part of that mood of mm. kicking out all foreigners or mm. people who had, uh, you know, so so um, so this you know the story is 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 complicated, mm. and also a lot of the Italians that were sent south were peasants. You know, they didn't do any killing. The mm. killing was done by the Mussolini people, yeah. but they sent these peasants south to populate the the country. Right. Um, and so there are so many little yeah. stories that uh, things that happen where humanity, the genius of humanity, you know, just arises. It just comes through all of yeah. this rubbish, all of this yeah. brutal uh, authoritarian language of power. Yeah. And through it, you have these wonderful occurrences. Right. So I grew up, although knowing this brutal history, knowing that my grandfather fought mm. in the resistance, my grandfather showing me his his bullet wound, and um, which was very affecting to me because... Mm. I I knew that he played a big role in the resistance, but he never talked about it. And once someone, I think it was my uncle, spoke about it, and my grandfather unbuttoned his shirt and he he went like this, and I could see this little rosette on his skin. That's yeah. a bullet had gone in. So I so I said to him, "Show me the other side." I thought it'd be it'd have come out from the other mm. side, and he showed me the other side, and there was nothing. And it was it was so upsetting to me, <laughs> the idea that the bullet was still yeah, inside yeah, of him. Yeah. Very upsetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of that, but knowing all of this, also growing up in a family that was very like a lot of Libyan families, very connected to Italy. Mm. You know, right. We went to Italy a lot. We yeah. knew a lot of Italians, and so the 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 the, the history is very complex. Hmm. Yeah, but uh, uh, made more complex by the propensity of both countries to not be very good with documenting right. history. So it's, you know, it's, uh, this, is, this is also, you know... Um, it's really interesting that you would say documenting history and documenting uh, the, the documented fact, because, I mean, history in your book is very much based on stories told. As you said earlier, people will come to you and say, I know what happened to your father. Yeah, yeah. And in most cases, it would be <coughs> half true. Or un, un, uh, it, it, I mean, yeah. and the, the book of, uh, is full of stories that are true, but not entirely true, or mm. you, mm. Don't, you only get half the truth. Mm. Or, so, I mean, it's, it's a book where documented facts are, <laughs> are really rare. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, whereas yeah. there are all these kinds of stories told by all these people. Yeah. Some of them are sort of transferred down the... The, the decades and other are sort of stories that you just received. So I mean, you, um, it feels like it's the the fabric of history in this book is, is stories more than documented facts. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think all stories are true, all of them, even the untrue ones, because they're true in the sense that they tell us something about what this person mm. wants to tell us. Um, so they are not true in the in the in the logistical sense, but they're true in the humanist sense. Right. Yeah. But um, the relationship between documenting things and history is not one where there's a correspondence. In other words, the avalanche of events and stories and history carries on regardless. Mm. Documenting, even if you have a, a country with an army of historians, cannot keep up. Right. You know, the the avalanche of things is is, is intense. Um, but when 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 I think when I think the 
the will and the ability uh, and the propensity to document whether in testimonies or history or works of 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 uh, of, of of literature or film or etc etc um, underpins a bit you know it somehow mm. tries to fix you in the in, in the tide of of history and i think the less you have of that the more bewildering the experience is right that's been my experience anyway uh, who knows yeah especially when you have a a history of of uh, ethnic cleansing and totalitarian regimes where uh, documented facts have a very different meaning than they do in yeah. sort of peaceful times like yeah. we have in Norway documenting facts yeah. can all be disputed and interpreted it doesn't mean that much yeah. but in this context that could mean well everything in a yeah. certain sense yeah mm. Mm. so i just have to tell you i have no clue about the time so uh, i i didn't pay I have five more minutes. Oh, that wasn't a whole lot. Uh, so, um, how, how do you think about heroism? It's just, uh, I mean, you're the, 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 some of the figures, I mean, I, I, I see you have a complex relationship to, to this, but some of the figures are uh, just grandfather and your father are sort of, they come across as heroic figures in many ways. Is that mm. something that you... Um, do you like that I say that, or don't you? In a certain sense, is that? Do you have a? How do you see that? Uh, I mean, I'm not. I don't. Um, I suppose ultimately, I'm suspicious of heroism. You know, um, because it's an abstraction, right? You know? So I, I, I try. I mean, I try to look at them objectively. But they've also I've done extraordinary things. Yeah, and so. Um, um, it's interesting because when you say it, if you were, if we were in a personal context, in other words, if you knew my father and my mm. grandfather and said that to me as a friend, it would warm my heart. Right. <laughs> but as a writer, mm. I'm yeah. suspicious. Right. Right. Well, That's a good answer. I think. <laughs> but and there's also mm. this. I mean, just to this is wonderful passage where you talk about the heroism of your mother. That yeah, my mother is really the. It's yeah. really it's she comes across. This is wonderful scene where she, where you you learn that she would, mm. she would set up the prisoners the house, families yeah. in a safe house, yeah. and then uh, the, the the sort of the story ends with she's saying, well, I don't know, it's so long ago, mm. which is a very different sort of kind of attitude that she comes there and sort of rejects the idea of telling stories about this because it's just it's so long ago. Uh, no, very she, was being, she was being self-deprecating. I mean, she just said it was, you know, maybe he was exaggerating. I did it once or twice. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, but yeah. you know, it, it, one of the things that happens when you go back to a place is you recognize, you learn other things about the people that you've known. Mm. Um, I know my mother fairly well, I think, <laughs> but I didn't know this about her at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to, uh, we just have to. I, I mean, there's a. Uh, yeah. When you when you start your when the campaign to find about the truth of your father really starts in London when mm. the paper starts writing about it, you you paint a quite grim picture of British politics and British politicians and uh, this is something um, yeah, there, there's something 
really uh, scary about how a totalitarian regime like Gaddafi's could then become sort of a, uh, the pets of uh, certain British politicians. Or the other way around. Yeah, or the other way around, you know, right. The, that would be even worse. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's, um, I, mean, it's I think it's a historic fact that... After nineteen, after two thousand and three, when Tony Blair went to Gaddafi and shook his hand, and uh, that the British regime's relationship to the Libyan dictatorship was a parasitic one, yeah. and it helped extend its life and it helped it oppress more political activists and civil rights, pe uh, uh, civil society people, lawyers, and so on, mm. made them more legitimate, and it made the position of people like me, Libyans and Britain, yeah. who are vocal, uh, uh, less tenable. Mm. And so it was, um, yeah, so it was, it was cynical mm. and it was right. parasitic. Yeah. And um, it was, I mean, I know many people in Britain who feel that that was a shameful chapter yeah. too. So, um, and what it did also is that it it strengthened uh, the Gaddafi regime's um, belief that everybody has got a price tag, yeah. including Britain, exactly, uh, including anyone. So in in the latter chapters in the book, where I'm engaging with Gaddafi's uh, son, Saif al-Islam, to to uh, see if we could get him to disclose what had happened to my father. That was quite a, a tricky balance yeah. because I am trying to use his desire to paint himself to the West as a reformer in order to get him to advance on certain things um, such as information about my father, mm -hmm. other right. political prisoners. Um, and he was waiting for the moment to make me as desperate as possible. Yeah. So as I would accept to... Uh, to uh, to be burnt by him, mm. you know, uh, because his experience has shown him that uh, you could buy everybody, mm. anybody, you could buy them, mm -hmm. you know. So he was very, he had no reason to think otherwise, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and my desperation mixed in with a bit of naivety thought that uh, if I could play this right, I might get him to advance yeah. on this. So none of the two happened, uh, but it was uh, one of the most difficult uh, things I've ever uh, had to do mm. and it taught me a lot about the cynical um, possessive nature of power mm. or, and what it can what it believes it can do mm. you know so um, so it was um, which is why I wanted to write about it and yeah. it was difficult writing about yeah. it because I wanted to write about it to be on the razor's edge right. I didn't want to you know, I add commentary here or there, mm. so it's just it's written as plainly as possible. Yeah, yeah. Just the communi communications betwe right. uh, between us. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe to close, maybe to close, I'll read something very short from sure. that. Um, just uh, if I could find it, um, we'll maybe be here all night. Me looking for it. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> You never go to an event by a Libyan writer because you're just still <laughs> like, what is he? Um, see, I should have prepared, but it just came to me. Ah, here we are. Um, 
So Ziad is my brother, my oh, four years my senior. We go together to meet Saif al-Islam and his, his men in a hotel lobby. Ziad donned his usual air of confidence and affability. I feared this taxed him more than the role I played taxed me. He asked the men what they would like to drink and whether they frequented this place. I suppose it's your hangout, Ziad said in English and smiled. Saif then added, Who is the writer? Ziad told him I was. You are the writer? Saif asked again. Yes, I said. Is that all you do? <laughs> I'm afraid so, I said. What, you mean all you do is write? Precisely. You don't do anything else? I try not to, I said. Maybe I'll stop here. <laughs> you have been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Literaturhuset. Music by Apotek.